Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Been waiting to preach this sermon since the moment my daughter was born. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and let me make a quick note about our text today. Um, besides the point that's in the text, we have to talk about this, the text itself. So if you have uh, notes, go ahead and take, take them out now and jot a few things down before we really get into the text today. The Greek is very difficult to understand in this passage, and that is reflected in the various translations that we have among us here this morning. If you were paying attention when uh, Rex read the Scripture at the opening of the service, we saw that the text was talking about a father and his daughter. However, if you are using an English Standard Version, ESV Bible, or an NIV, or NLT, or some other translation, it's possible that you're seeing in the text today that it's not about a father and his daughter, but rather about a man and his fiancée. And that's because in the Greek text today, we don't have the word father there, we don't have the word daughter there. We have the phrase, a man and his virgin. And we have to decide then, as people who are students of Scripture, and if you've studied Greek, if you've learned Greek, which I would recommend for all of you, uh, to dig in and decide for yourself what is Paul talking about. Because a man and his virgin could mean, of course, a man and his fiancée that he's engaged to. It could also mean a man and his daughter. So in the one, on the one hand, with certain translations, the scenario is an engagement. And you might see that in your particular Bible today. But in the New American Standard, in the King James Version, and others, the scenario is a father deciding whether to allow his daughter to move forward uh, into a marriage. So you have a man deciding whether he wants to move forward and marry this woman he's engaged to, or a father allowing his daughter to be married if she wants to be married. Those are two very different scenarios, aren't they? <laughs> well, let me just tell you from the beginning, I take the view that this is talking about father and daughter relationship, and there are a few reasons for that. Uh, it was interesting as I was studying, preparing this message, and I first work in the original language as much as I can with my translation and making my outline apart from any commentaries. That's my practice. And then at the end, I bring in commentaries. And I had forgotten all about there being translation issues with this passage, so I was just humming right along and making a great outline. And then I went to my commentaries, and they were pretty well split on what this was about. Then I started calling pastors, and they were pretty well split on what this was about. Uh, and I told, uh, told one of them that, well, I'll just make a list of all the people who take each view, and I'll decide which group of people I like better, and that'll be my translation. But no, I, I do believe it is talking about the father-daughter relationship, even after all that research. And uh, that's based on some context clues that are in the text. But I just want to let you know about this at the start for a couple of reasons. First of all, so that you will not be distracted by whatever translation you have with you today. When we get back to 1 Corinthians 7, because we're going to go to the Old Testament here shortly. But when we get back to 1 Corinthians 7, I would urge you to either use a Bible that you have in the pew there, one of those blue hardback Bibles, or just follow along on the screen. Otherwise, you'll get very distracted with your Bible that translates this passage differently. So that's one reason I'm telling you that. The other reason is because I want you to know that I believe I could be wrong on this. I don't think I am, but I could be. And uh, 
it's a difficult text. Just wanted you to know that, okay? So I'm going to read this again from the New American Standard, and uh, then we'll open with a word of prayer. I'll do 36 to 38. It says, But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we are reminded over and over again of our own limitations as creatures. We are unable to do anything perfectly. That includes communicate. Uh, however, you have seen fit to speak to us and preserve your word that we can hear from it and understand. And you've used limited creatures to bring this about. And it's a great mystery, but we are so thankful. And we just confess that we absolutely depend on you. We need your help. We need your wisdom. And we ask that today as we examine the word, as we do every time that we look into Scripture, that you would supply us with Holy Spirit wisdom, that we would grow up in maturity as we look into your word and understand more about you and who you created us to be. Lord, I ask that today as we get into this text that you wouldn't... Uh, allow me to get in the way, but that your word would be so clear to your people that we would all grow together in our understanding of what you have said. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start down this road of interpreting this passage as the father-daughter relationship, we need to make some certain big truths clear before we get down into the details. Uh, firstly, God is ultimate authority, and I hope you understand that, recognize that, embrace that truth today, that God is the ultimate capital A authority, and he has established systems of authority on the face of the earth. We know this because we have a government that rules over us, right? Um, as much as some of you may not like that reality, it's still reality, right? Uh, we have a government that rules over us. And we find out from the scriptures, namely Romans 13, that every government exists because it has been instituted by God. God is sovereign over this, and he has instituted government over us. We know that in our homes, if you have children or not, even if you just think back to when you were a child, you were given an authority. You didn't have a choice either. There they were in your home to watch over you, to care for you, to set rules, to give you commands that you would obey and follow. That authority has come from God. He is the ultimate authority, and He has instituted systems of authority on the earth. And this is a moral issue. This is an issue of morality, that God has established authority on the earth. And it's established first in the Old Covenant, and it's continued on into the New Testament and into 1 Corinthians even in our text today. But as we think about the context of what's happening at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, and the idea of a father giving away a daughter in marriage, this is tied directly to systems of authority. The father is the authority in the home. He is the head of the home. And God has commissioned him to 
practice righteous authority, to honor God with his authority, and to bring up his children in the way they should go, all the way until, in this case, a daughter is given over to another head of another household. We've experienced this so much in our lives when we go to a wedding, and the father gives away the bride traditionally. That's established in Scripture. That is how it is to work. The father is to release his daughter to a marriage. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, daughters were given in marriage. It's nearly countless as you examine the First Testament of your Bible. Jacob and Isaac and Moses and David, they all had wives that they received, that they received from their fathers. They were the ones who set this up. It was very clearly a common practice in Israel. And we find in our text today that Paul doesn't speak to virgins as they are some independent agents. He doesn't take that view, but he's speaking to the fathers of these young women. He speaks to her authority, her head in the home. Now, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages, and certainly there were things that happened in Israel that don't happen today, certain practices, arranging marriages, giving fathers a bride price, a dowry. Uh, You know, even though my father gave Melissa's father a few cows and some goats, that's not what everybody does. I understand that. And that's okay. We're from mid-Missouri. We do things differently there. But in the Old Testament, we have the principle, the moral principle that gets carried over into the New Testament. So turn with me all the way back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, right after the Ten Commandments were given, comes this chapter discussing a variety of issues. Exodus 21, and we're going to look at just one verse in this chapter. And all these verses we're going to look at in the Torah, there's so much going on around those verses that you're going to want to ask about. But try to bear with me today and just follow the principle of the father having authority over the daughter. Follow that principle throughout the Torah with me before we get back to 1 Corinthians and save your questions. I, I would love to answer your questions. I, perhaps I should take this moment just to let you know I really do enjoy getting your questions and taking the time to study to give you a thorough answer. So if anything comes up, not just today, but ever, just email me. And that's what I'm here for, partly, is to answer those types of things. So um, do that. No, no question is, is out of bounds. If it has to do with the Bible, then ask it, okay? But uh, Exodus 21.7, look at this verse with me. It says, If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. Right. Now you can see why I said there are lots of other questions that will pop up (laughs) in these verses. Well, uh, in, in Israel, there were certain times where it would be more advantageous for the daughter of a home to be brought into a family to where she would be the wife of a slave owner, where she would perhaps be treated as a female slave and be cared for uh, in a variety of ways that she couldn't be cared for at home. And the father was the one who was commissioned to say if that daughter was to be in that situation or not. He was the one who, it says in our verse here, to sell his daughter as a female slave. Again, email me your questions and we'll take care of those later. 
But just see here the principle that the father is the one assigning where the daughter goes. Turn perhaps just a page over to Exodus 22. Exodus 22, we'll look at verse 16. Exodus 22, starting at verse 16, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry or a bride price for her to be his wife. Now listen to this. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So the man who did this to the young woman was still to pay a penalty. There was a punishment for his sin. Whether he was going to be paying the bride price and receiving a bride, or if the father said, no, you're just going to pay the price and that's it. But the father was the one who determined if that marriage occurred or not. He was the one in charge, the one who was placed in authority to say if that was going to take place. Very interestingly, turn with me to the book of Numbers. So go past the book of Leviticus and go deep into the book of Numbers, chapter 30. Numbers chapter 30, and we'll pick up in verse 1. This will be a bit of a longer passage to look at, but very, very pertinent for our text today. Numbers chapter 30, starting at verse 1. It says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man takes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So we should stop right there and pause for a moment. The Lord takes vows very seriously. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus taught against taking oaths. And here we have this text that's the foundation for what Jesus taught here in the Old Testament that your word is binding. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now take all of that thought into verse 3. It says, also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. Verse 6, However, if she should marry while under her vows or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day he hears it, then her vow shall stand and her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it he for, and he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow which she is under and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. Drop down to the last verse of the chapter, verse 16. It says, these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife and as between a father and his daughter while she is in her youth in her father's house. That's an amazing text. Fathers were responsible in Israel to oversee, to provide oversight for the vows of their daughters. And if they said, let it be, then it was. They had the right of veto, though, didn't they? They had the right, according to this text, to come in and say, no, 
and the Lord would forgive, forgive her, and all would be well, because the head of the home, the father, the one with authority, was the one who intervened. One last text in the Torah. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. The next book, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll look at just one verse. This is a warning for Israel as they were seeking to enter the land of Canaan. They were told what they should do and what they should not do. Look at verse 3 with me. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. It says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, the Canaanites. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Again, the father in a position of guarding the marriage that was to come from his children. He was the one responsible for either giving away the child or keeping the child. And the command here in this verse is to the father. Do not give your daughters to them or take their daughters for your sons. Very interesting moral issue established in the Old Testament and then continued in the New Testament as far as the basis for Paul's argument at the end of 1 Corinthians 7. The father is the one in the position of keeping or giving, and the daughter is in submission. The father either keeps or gives, and the daughter is in submission to what the father does. His decision is binding, yet he does not have to make a once-for-all decision. We see that in our text today, too. Though his decision is binding, that doesn't mean that as the daughter is born, as perhaps some fathers in here have said, this daughter shall never marry. (laughs) His decision doesn't have to be once for all. He can change his mind. And we see that in our text today. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. And again, let me remind you, if you have anything besides a New American Standard or a King James Version, just look at the screen or grab one of the Bibles that's in the pew. uh, I'm just afraid you'll be too distracted to... Uh, follow along. And you can study this all on your own after the fact, but for now, just stick with the translations that have translated it this way, okay? There's a difficult subjectivity on the part of the Father that's presented in just verse 36. Let me read it again, just that first verse. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, and if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let her marry. There are three if statements in there, three conditions, and all of those conditions are pretty subjective. It is very difficult for a father to make such a subjective decision about whether his daughter should marry, whether his daughter should marry right now, whether his daughter should marry that person right now. Lots of factors go into all of that that are difficult for fallen human beings like every earthly father there is. Notice that it first says in verse 36 that if any man thinks, if any man thinks, it means to suppose, if any man is reading the situation, estimating what's going on, and leans this way or that way, (laughs) that's really difficult. Just that, trying to accurately read a situation to make a wise decision, it's very difficult. If any man supposes that he is acting unbecomingly, what a word, (laughs) what an interesting word. You didn't use that word this week, did you? Unbecomingly, what does that mean? Well, it essentially means unreasonable. 
If any Christian father is considering his daughter's desire for marriage and his standing in the way as becoming unreasonable, well, he should reconsider a different option. If he's disallowing her marriage in a way that at the end of the day is more foolish than it is wise, then he can change his thoughts on this. And it's not just any daughter. It says, one who has passed her youth. Now, I'm not going to give an age on that because that will get me in a lot of trouble. I think we're talking triple digits. So just so you know, it's, everyone in here is safe. Now, if anyone has passed her youth, and there, this word that's used uh, in the Greek, it's a word that comes up in other texts, not just in the Bible. It doesn't come up in the Bible uh, very much. I think this may be the only instance of it. There are some instances where it meant one who is quite young, one who is just approaching childbearing age. And then there are other instances of it that mean past childbearing age. What does past her youth mean? Does it mean past childhood or does it mean past childbearing age? Well, that's another subjective thing. When is the daughter of marriageable age? All the fathers have very strong opinions on that when their children are really young. <laughs> Perhaps when they get older, then the age comes down. I don't know. Um, but it just says if she's past her youth. And then it gives another phrase. What does this mean? And if it must be so, if it must be so, if she really wants to be married, if it really is her desire, if she clearly does not have the gift of singleness where she is desiring a husband strongly, that perhaps would necessitate things. But again, if it must be, does it really have to be now? Does it really have to be to this person? And I'll just tell you now, for Ada, the answer is no. Not now, not him. I don't care who him is, no. And then it goes on to say, right after that, if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. So this is totally up to the conscience of the Father. It's what he wishes. Let him do what he wishes. His God-given conscience, his spirit-informed and led conscience is to guide him as he makes this decision. Very, very difficult. Lots of subjectivity in there. And then Paul gives an interesting opinion in the following verses. He says in verse 37, but, this is saying, okay, if the father doesn't change, if he stands firm in his heart, if he's under no constraint and he has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. So Paul is saying, you can do what you want, but one of the options is clearly better than the other. <laughs> That's how Paul is framing this. And we have to recognize that though the authority in the home, as the father is the head of the home, even though that is a moral issue, that's clearly taught in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, that the man is the one who is responsible in the home to lead and guide and to direct the home. Even though that's a moral issue, the father deciding whether or not to give his daughter in marriage is not a moral issue. There is no right or wrong in that decision. It can be either way. But Paul says one is better. One is better. And this is one of the reasons why I see 
this text is talking about father-daughter and not as an engagement. Because in those days, a betrothal, and you know this from the Christmas story, Joseph and Mary, a betrothal was like a marriage. It required a divorce for it to stop. And so I don't see Paul saying, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want, one way or the other, when it came to an engagement, because the engagements were considered so seriously then. Here Paul is saying, look, you can just make up your own mind, do whatever you wish. I believe he's speaking to fathers. And a man keeping his own daughter is advantageous for serving the Lord. That's his whole point here. His desire for the Corinthian Christians was for them to serve the Lord, not just individually, but with their household. And keeping the daughters in the home for the purpose of serving the Lord, dedicating them for service in the Lord, how could we say that isn't better, right? That's a stronger home in so many ways. And so Paul is saying that is even better. Think of Philip. He was one of the original table servers in the book of Acts. We first meet Philip in Acts 6, but we see Philip again in Acts 21. As Paul is on his missionary journeys, he comes to Philip's house, and it said that Philip had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now, even though we don't believe there are prophetesses still today, that was for that age, you can consider how strong Philip's household was for the Lord, serving the Lord with his daughters at home, alongside with him, serving God in every way they can. As John MacArthur has said, the choice is not between right and wrong, but between good and better. That's the choice for the Christian father, between good and better. But this all depends, of course, on the daughter's willingness too. Because the father isn't to rule with an iron fist and I don't care what you say, this is what you're going to do. That wouldn't lead to very fruitful service now, would it? (laughs) That would lead to all kinds of issues in the home. So what Paul said in verse 36 is, let her go, let her marry, if it must be so. If it is clear that she does not have the gift of singleness, and let's just be very straightforward and honest here, very few of us have the gift of singleness. We see in the book of Genesis, did you say amen, you goober? (laughs) We see in the book of Genesis, that it is not good for man to be alone, right? <laughs> Joseph, I'm going to have a hard time recovering from that one, brother. <laughs> That's good. Okay, get back into serious mode. Here we go. Together, we can do it. <laughs> God said it is not good for man to be alone. And many of us, of course, feel that. Many of us are married. That's the reason why. However, There are those who have the gift of singleness, who can go on in their lives, being single, having their lives totally set aside for serving the Lord, for happy devotion to God, free, happy devotion to God. And Paul says, that is better. That is better. So he's speaking to the father saying, if you can keep your daughter, how much better is that? But here's a word to the Christian fathers. If you're a Christian father, hear me, okay? Through prayer and counsel, seek to make appropriate decisions for your children as the one who is tasked with that duty. You're the one who is to guide, to lead, to direct, to sometimes get in the way of things. And that's painful. And at other times, allow things based on your conscience, your informed conscience. By the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, through the people of God, the counsel that you can receive whether you have a daughter, whether you have a son, whatever it is, 
This is how Christian men are to think. This is how Christian men are to approach their families in the home with a concern not just for today, but what is best for the Lord, for service for the Lord. What is best? The Father is the one at the end of the day who is responsible for this. If your children haven't left the home, they are under your care. You're to take that so seriously, so, so seriously. So what's Paul's reasoning in all this? He wants believers to live freely devoted to God. Look at verse 32. Just back up a few verses with me. Verse 32, we'll read a couple verses here. It says, I want you to be free from concern. That's Paul's heart. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about things of the world, how he may please his wife. And look at this in the start of verse 34, his interests are divided. So Paul's heart is for free devotion to God, freely living for God, whether you're married or whether you're single. And from Paul's perspective, in that day, at that time, because remember, many of the Corinthians were already in mixed marriages. Many of the Corinthians were already married to pagans. And Paul says, I just see it best to avoid the whole scenario altogether if it is possible for you, based on these issues, based on these different contexts that he's laid out through the chapter. So if you can, to the fathers, if you could keep your own daughter, that's even better. And as the father of a sweet little girl, I say, amen. (laughs) So you might be asking, how authoritative are these verses? Okay, well, this is Paul here. Is he just throwing out his own opinion apart from the authority he's been writing with all the way to this point? Well, no, he's writing Scripture still. This is still authoritative Scripture. And I hope that we can see with Paul, based on everything that was going on, why he was writing that letter, that yes, one is better. One is better. Paul was right because the Spirit was guiding his words. So let's recap briefly. It's a moral issue that God is ultimate authority and has placed authority on earth, even in the home. It is a moral issue that the man be the head of his home, leading righteously with love, laying down his life as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is how he is to lead. That's a moral issue, and that can't be compromised. Yet, his decisions that he makes as the authority are many times up to his conscience. There is no clear right or wrong. Scripture doesn't speak specifically on what to do. And so through prayer and counsel, the man is to make the appropriate, responsible, wise decision. The existence of authority, moral issue. The decision he makes, not a moral issue, if Scripture doesn't speak to it directly. So Christians are free to follow their consciences on this. And I haven't mentioned anything about the wives. Forgive me for that. I mentioned how the husband is to work with the daughter on it. Well, of course, that also means working with his wife on it because our wives have insight that we don't have, men. They have great insight into their daughter's lives that we do not have. Therefore, I don't want to present this again as the dad ruling with an iron fist. He's doing the wise, responsible, godly thing to do, which is consulting within his own home and consulting outside of his own home with godly people for wisdom, okay? And to make the best decision he can make. 
It's a wisdom issue. Christians must consider what is best for them and for the church. All right. Well, um, having dealt with that issue, <laughs> we, can, we can leave that behind us with no questions left, right? Uh, certainly. Well, after addressing the Corinthians question or questions concerning marriage, Paul gives two final verses on the topic of marriage. And I will say this, uh, one, one more thing before moving on. Uh, the different translation options that exist in verses 36 to 38, father-daughter versus engaged couple, it would be made absolutely clear if we had the letter from the Corinthians to Paul, because Paul was answering their specific questions. But we do not have that letter, and that's why Paul answered in a way that they totally understood. They knew what they asked, but we don't. We don't have that letter. That's why there's a difficulty there on top of other reasons, okay? Well, let's look at verses 39 and 40 and round out this chapter. It says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Here's a clear, fundamental truth about marriages. They are permanent, yet temporary. It's clear as that, isn't it? They are permanent, yet temporary. You've, of course, heard the phrase, till death do us part. And that's a good phrase, built on good biblical theology. Till death do us part. There's a permanency of marriage that exists until death, according to Scripture. When you enter into that covenant, you enter into that covenant saying, till death to us part, with a view of this lasting until death. And we have to make that clear, that on the one hand, marriage is permanent, and on the other hand, marriage is also temporary, isn't it? Look at what Paul says again in verses 32 and 33 in the same chapter. I want you to be free from concern. Who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But what kind of things is the married person concerned about? It says in verse 33, the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. Marriage belongs in the worldly realm. Marriage doesn't belong in the eternal, spiritual realm. It's an earthly provision. And around here, it's important that you understand that theology because there, of course, are some wayward teachings on this. But here, the apostle talks about marriage as being something of the world. That doesn't make it bad. That doesn't make it anything that's uh, unholy or anything like that. It's God's provision, and God was happy to provide it for us. It's His design all the way back in Genesis. Yet we see in our verses today that death ends the marriage, and the person who loses a spouse to death is then free to remarry, no longer bound in marriage. I want to give you one cross-reference for this, and that's Romans 7. The first three verses of Romans 7 say essentially the same thing. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. In Romans 7, starting in verse 1, it talks about uh, this very thing and compares it to our relationship with the law. It says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? So stop right there. The law has jurisdiction over you as long as you live. If you're of the law, if you're bound to a law, 
Well, till death, you're under that law. Verse 2 says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. It's an earthly, lifelong type of covenant. When we died to the law in Christ, we were free to be united to Christ by faith. We as Christians are not united to a law, but we've died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. We've died to the law, and we've been united to Christ. Well, it's a perfect illustration. You have a husband and wife. The husband dies. She is then released. She's free to be remarried. Thomas Schreiner has said this, Believers should marry fellow believers, but whether they should remarry after the death of a first spouse is left to the conscience and desire of the individual in question. God leads and guides in such situations, and thus individuals are given a freedom to pursue what they believe God is calling them to do. We see in our text today that if a spouse dies... The one still living is absolutely free to remarry. There's no other text in Scripture that is this clear on remarriage. It says it plainly, free to remarry. There have been some people who have twisted this, and where this uh, shows up a lot of times is in qualifications for elders. It says that elders and uh, deacons should be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. And some people have taking this, uh, this qualification to mean, that means he should never have been divorced or remarried. It's not what it says. Some people have gone so far to say, well, even if he had a wife that died and then he got married again, well, he's still not a one-woman man. He's still a two-woman man. Not what the text says. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Scripture says Christians are free to remarry after the death of a spouse, okay? So uh, don't let anybody bring some man-made law over you. That is not what the Scriptures say. And we see here again in verse 40 that Paul's concern, the last verse of the chapter, Paul's concern is happy devotion to God. He says, in my opinion, this widow is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Paul's ultimate concern in all these things is free happy devotion to God, meaning you're able to give God with your life your undivided attention. What an amazing thing. Paul says that's better. That's better. But we also know that you're free up to your conscience how you move forward. You are free to decide for yourself. If one must be married, that person is free to get remarried, but it needs to be in the Lord. That's what Paul said at the end of verse 39. Free to remarry only in the Lord. That means find another Christian. You can imagine there were widows of pagans who had passed away at this point in the church in Corinth. Their pagan husband had died, and now they wanted to get remarried. And so it was important for Paul to insert that note, especially when the churches were all so small and the cultures were all so pagan. It would have been hard to find another spouse in the Lord. Yet that was the command given. Only in the Lord 
should that be done? Because if you're married to someone who also knows Jesus and loves him, then you can still give him great attention. You can still serve him in unity together. Now, perhaps Paul, as Paul said, it's not as good as being single and giving him your undivided attention. Yet, if you're married in the Lord, you can still be active in your service to him. You're doubling your efforts in many ways as you serve the Lord. Gordon Fee says this about being remarried in the Lord. This is not so much a command that she may not marry outside the Lord as it is good sense. Such a woman lives from such a radically different perspective and value system from that of a pagan husband that a mixed marriage where the two become one is simply unthinkable. If she becomes a believer after marriage, then she should maintain the marriage with the hope of winning him to the Lord. But it makes no sense from Paul's perspective for one to engage in such a marriage once one is a follower of Christ. I think we have to agree with that, don't we? That it makes no sense. And Paul says here at the end, just so you know, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. (laughs) Making it clear to them that this isn't just some flippant opinion, but he's reinforcing the fact that he's an apostle writing with authority. Because what is the ultimate purpose of marriage in the Christian worldview? What is the purpose of getting married from a biblical perspective? It's not to have your Disney happily ever after moment. It's not it. It's not to go about living life just nothing goes wrong and we are just in experiencing unending bliss. It's not even for you to be happy. But the purpose of marriage in the Christian worldview is to serve the Lord. The purpose of marriage from a biblical perspective is to serve God with all that He gives. And Paul says here, that is, that is what you need to be thinking like. Thinking about serving God happily, being devoted to Him. If it must be so, get married. If not, that's even better. But serve God. Serve God freely. And I think I too have the Spirit of God, he says. And this is important Because some commentators think that as Paul said this at the very end, like his final little note, that he was responding to what some of the Corinthians had said. Like it was a phrase that they would say, you know, let's do this. We have the Spirit of God. Let's do this. Let's do that. And when you talk to people about marriage or getting married or what they're doing in their relationships, you know what they're going to say? I've got the Spirit of God. God just, I don't think God said that. I don't think God said this. I don't think God said that. God told me. How about that one? God told me to do this, to do that. God gave me feelings for him. God gave me feelings for her. And what should our response be as Christians? I don't care what you say. I care what the Word of God says. Because you can't argue with what God has said. We can argue about feelings. We can argue about opinions. We can argue about emotions all day long. Uh, God told me that he didn't tell you that, right? I mean, we could just play that game all day long. But what do the Scriptures say? This is our final authority in all matters of living. What does Scripture say? 
And if Scripture doesn't speak to your situation specifically, get prayer and counsel. Appeal to those that God has placed in your life that you would make the best decision from an informed conscience and that you might sleep easy at night knowing that you are totally giving the situation over to God and asking Him to interrupt it if it's wrong. And God will work in your life. That is His promise. But if you are going to stand against the Word of God, if you're going to say, well, I feel that God has set this up this way for me to do this, and someone else is holding a Bible in his or her hand and says, well, what about this? You have a decision to make, don't you? Do you submit to the Word of God or do you keep on living in rebellion? Submit to the Word of God. And let me tell you, it's easier. (laughs) It's easier. That shouldn't be your primary motivation, but it is a reality. It's easier to submit to what is true than it is to kick against it. And it might be painful for a season, but the Lord is going to do amazing things in you and through you when you appeal to His Word. And He's going to teach you things you would never be able to learn on your own. He's going to show you things you'd never see on your own. And He's going to bring glory to Himself through you, you little worm. He's going to bring glory to Himself in such amazing ways where you'll sit back and think, just thank Him for what He has done. Isn't that good that we have a God who's involved and cares? Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you so much because this is all about you. This is your world, and we're living in it to serve you. Give us great wisdom and insight as to how we can do that as we make decisions in the day-to-day. Strengthen our homes. Make our men godly, that they would serve their wives that you've given them that they would do so faithfully, that they would care about what you have said as they go about making the decisions in the home, not just making flippant opinions, but seeking the Spirit of God who guides and directs us. Give us great unity in our homes, that husbands and wives as fathers and mothers would lead their children in unity, that they would guide their children in unity, that they would see things together that need to be addressed, and that they would address it in love. Make our families strong. Lord, keep us, protect us from the evil one, that we would be lights shining in a dark place for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.